Uh, I, uh, I love our church. <laughs> I just got to say it. I do love worshiping with our worship uh, team on Sunday mornings. I love that we got 12 kids crammed into eight chairs in the front row up here. Love the conversations I get to have with people before and after church on Sunday morning. And I just, uh, I just love our church. And I'm just fill, filled with love for our church uh, this morning. Uh, and I hope you are as well. That's all I have to say about that. Well, please turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Daniel, chapter 3. Daniel chapter 3, we'll be covering the whole chapter this morning. And as you're turning there, I just want to give a shout out to uh, Noah and Michaela Dane now. They're both, uh, Michaela Dane, they got married uh, yesterday and I had the privilege of performing their wedding and uh, they're not here this morning, I can't believe that, there's no excuses for that, but... Um, but if you see them, certainly congratulate them and uh, be praying for them as they begin their journey of marriage together. So super happy for them. Just a, blessed to be a part of that day. Yesterday was an outdoor wedding and literally the most perfect weather I've ever been to for an outdoor wedding. You're really rolling the dice with an outdoor wedding. I just got to say, if you do it, you're gutsier than I am, okay? But uh, they rolled the dice and uh, they, uh, it worked out perfect for them. So it was uh, just a beautiful day and just a great time uh, to bring, that brought uh, honor to God and, and celebrated the, the two of them. So uh, praise the Lord for that. I also do just want to uh, encourage you, October 9th, if you're able to come, it's not only if you are uh, interested in the Guatemala mission trip, uh, but Les Peters, uh, it, it's just one of these things, it's hard to explain unless you've met him. Uh, we, we had the chance as the Guatemala mission trip team uh, to spend a lot of time with him when we were down there uh, this last summer, and uh, just the, the stories that this man has to share about the way that God has been working in that ministry, you just, you're not going to want to miss it. So if you're able to come on October 9th, uh, just be in here and just be probably about an hour him sharing uh, stories, and then we will give more information about the Guatemala mission trip if you are interested in going with us uh, next year, but it's not only if you're interested in that, I want to encourage all of you to come. All right, well, we got a lot to uh, get into this morning, and so I need to stop filibustering, and we need to get to the text. So please bow your heads with me, and let's pray. Heavenly Father, God, uh, you are so, so good to us. You have been so good to me. You have been so gracious and kind slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. You are faithful, God. We praise you for that this morning. Lord, I pray that everyone just sitting in this room right now would just be filled with a sense of your presence, your faithfulness, your love for them, your love for all of us, uh, despite our sin, Just an amazing truth. Jesus doesn't hate us because of our sin. He hates our sin. And so he works with us to fight against our sin. He's on our team. Lord, I pray that everyone in here would know that this morning. Would have be filled with a fresh sense of your grace and of your mercy. And be filled with a greater desire to follow you with everything that they have this week, God. That's why we need to gather regularly, Lord because we are such a forgetful people. I am such a forgetful person, God. So we need the reminder. We need the daily reminder in your word, and we need this uh, weekly reminder of the gathered people of God, the gospel of your goodness, of your love for all of us, Lord. So we thank you 
that once again we get to do that this morning and we get the absolute privilege of looking into your word into uh, this chapter in Daniel chapter 3 written uh, thousands of years ago and yet so relevant to us so Lord I pray that whatever you want us to see in it it would just be crystal clear and blatantly obvious God and that you'd be glorified in all that we do this morning we pray in Jesus name amen all right, well, Daniel chapter 3, as you may know, if you've uh, turned there and looked at the little heading, is, the, is one of the more famous stories in the Old Testament. It's the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego's refusal to bow down to the golden image that Nebuchadnezzar made. Or if you uh, grew up watching Veggie Tales like I did, it's the story of Rack, Shack, and Benny refusing to sing the bunny song. It's a story of a king with a giant ego. It's a story of incredible faith, bold faith of three friends. And ultimately, it's a story about the faithfulness of our God. As we've said during our time in the book of Daniel so far, the first six chapters that we're working our way through right now teach us how to live faithful lives in Babylon. So far, for Daniel and his friends, life in Babylon has been uh, nothing if not a roller coaster, right? So in Daniel chapter 1, these guys risk their lives because they refuse to defile themselves with the king's food, and yet God blesses them because they refuse to defile themselves, and they're seen as the greatest of all the wise men. So life is bad, and then life is good. And then in Daniel chapter 2, life gets bad again because Nebuchadnezzar has a dream, and he's really cranky about it, and he wants uh, somebody to tell him what he dreamt and then what that dream meant. And uh, none of the wise men could do it, which meant they were all sentenced to death. That's not when you have a death sentence. Life is not good for you at that moment. But God is faithful once again, and he reveals the dream to Daniel and its interpretation. And Daniel is promoted, and he requests, we didn't talk about it last week, but he requests that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego get promoted as well. And so once again, now they're in a position of even greater power and authority in Babylon than they've ever had before. So life is bad, and then it's good, and then it's bad, and then it's good. I think that can just be maybe a lesson for us, right, of just what can we expect as we live our lives in modern-day Babylon. Sometimes life is good in Babylon, right? Sometimes being faithful to God lives to visible, tangible blessing that you experience in that moment. Sometimes life is good in Babylon. And sometimes, right, life is bad in Babylon, Sometimes being faithful to God leads to visible, tangible persecution that you experience in that moment. But what I think is so clear, and we're going to see that this week as well, what I think is so clear so far in Daniel is that we in Babylon are called to faithfulness regardless of what the outcome is going to be. In other words, maybe I have some business people in here uh, that you might relate to this well, that we're not called to do a cost-benefit analysis on obedience before we obey. 
We're not called to do a future earnings projection to decide whether or not we should obey in this moment. Well, where's it going to take me? What are the risks associated? What's the benefit? Is obedience going to help me in the long run or is it going to hurt me in the long run? And then I'm going to kind of crunch all the numbers and decide whether to obey. We're not called to do that, are we? You can answer. We're called to do that? No. Thank you. Just making sure we're awake. We're called to obedience, full stop. Sometimes that obedience will lead to blessing. Maybe others will look up to you and revere you for uh, being obedient. Other times, obedience means you will be despised and rejected by those around you. Life in Babylon means a life of faithful obedience regardless of where it leads. That's what we've seen so far in the first two chapters, and wouldn't you know it, that's what we're going to see in Daniel chapter 3 as well. Because Nebuchadnezzar, he's up to it again. So look with me, starting at verse 1, we're going to see what's going on. The first thing we're going to see in this story is a narcissistic king. This is funny. I told uh, Marcy this week that I just had three simple points on my uh, PowerPoint. (laughs) She put three simple points right up there. I wasn't expecting that, but that's great. That's exactly what this is this week. Three simple points. Fantastic. Point number one. Great job, Marcy. I love, uh, can we thank Marcy for all that she does for our church, by the way? I am so blessed. This was not planned. I am so blessed to have an amazing assistant and uh, just the, she does so much for our church. So thank you, Marcy, and great job on this PowerPoint this week. Point number one of our three simple points, a narcissistic king. That's what we're going to see. Look at verse one. It says, King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold whose height was 60 cubits and its breadth 6 cubits. He set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. All right, Nebuchadnezzar, remember what happened last week? He just heard, he had this dream where there was a statue of a man and the head was made of gold. And uh, Daniel told him, Nebuchadnezzar, you are the gold Head. And the point of the dream was that all of those kingdoms were going to eventually fade away. But Nebuchadnezzar didn't listen that far. He just heard on the gold head. So what does he do? He builds a gigantic gold statue. In fact, he builds a ridiculous gigantic gold statue. This whole chapter, and, and kind of in the background, is kind of making fun of Nebuchadnezzar. So we got to kind of see these hints of, of what's going on. He built a statue that is 10 times taller than it is wide. It would have been an engineering feat just for them to get this gold statue like sitting upright and not falling over. He builds what is just an absurdly proportioned uh, statue here, and he sets it up. And once he has this ridiculous statue made, he decides that he needs to have a ridiculous ceremony to commemorate the ridiculous statue that has been made. And so I'm not going to read verses 2 to 7, but what you see there are just like long lists of all the people that were invited and all the musical instruments that would be there. And these lists are like repeated uh, multiple times to just kind of show us again, like this is just, the whole thing is a farce. It's an absurdity. Um, What it uh, kind of reminds me of is just coming to my head right now, but uh, uh, oh no. 
the, the, the Hunger Games, if you've seen that movie, they have like all the, I don't even, this is where I shouldn't go off the cuff. But they have these, these, the people who are in what, the District 1, somebody was nodding it to me, so you know. And they like dress up just like in these ridiculous outfits and just kind of show like all the posh pomp and circumstance. And, but it's just meant to like laugh at these people, right? That's what's going on. So that, some of you got that reference, others of you did. But anyways, that's what's going on in here. We're just meant to laugh at just the ridiculousness of all of this. So we have an outrageous statue, we have an outrageous ceremony to commemorate the outrageous statue, and then of course we have an outrageous punishment then for people who might refuse to bow down to this statue. Uh, I, I mean, it's ridiculous. If the statue was really all that great and worth bowing down to, he wouldn't have to have threatened the death penalty to anyone who, um, who refused to bow down, Right? But he did. And not only the death penalty, you'd be thrown into a fiery furnace, right? Like you just see like this king in his rage, like if anyone wouldn't bow down, I'm going to throw him into the furnace, right? That'll teach them. The whole thing is uh, ridiculous. And once again, these men who are really on a roller coaster, just trying to be faithful in the place that God has called them to be faithful, find themselves at a crossroads where if they're obedient to their God, it's going to lead them to death. They didn't ask for this. They didn't do anything to bring this on themselves, just like they didn't in Daniel chapter 2 or Daniel chapter 1. But they find themselves in a situation where they have to make another excruciating decision. Are they going to bow down to the statue to try to preserve their lives, or are they going to refuse and risk death and remain faithful to God? That's the question, ultimately, that this passage sets up for us. And as I was studying this week, I was um, thinking about how uh, we need to talk about this, what lessons there are for us, and I was just immediately drawn to the perspective of Uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and how would they respond in this situation? And then the Lord kind of stopped me in my tracks, gave me in the words of, uh, immortal words of Al Borland, I don't think so, Tim, is what the Holy Spirit said to me. I don't think anyone younger than me got that reference, but that's okay. I'm like right on the line for the show Home Improvement. Great show. Because... I don't know about you, but I th- whenever I um, read different Bible stories, I find myself instinctively like putting myself in the shoes of the heroes, right? Like David and Goliath. Well, would I have been the one who stood up to the giant, right? Moses and Pharaoh. Like I don't picture myself as Pharaoh. I picture myself as Moses, right? Or uh, when Jesus and the disciples are in the boat, Jesus walks on water. One disciple hops out of the boat. Well, That would have been me too, right? Except I wouldn't have lost my faith. I would have just walked right on the water to Jesus and everything would have worked great, right? We can like, maybe it's just me, but we can like instinctively put ourselves in the shoes of the heroes of the story, not recognizing that we got some villain in us too. And what the Holy Spirit really revealed to me uh, kind of out of nowhere this week was like, we need to talk about the fact that we might have some uh, Nebuchadnezzar in our hearts as well. That might sound a little bit silly. None of you that I know of have created a 90-foot-tall, 9-foot-wide statue that you're commanding everyone to bow down to. Better not do that. And yet, when we think about what Nebuchadnezzar was really trying to do, it's not hard to see our own hearts 
in his actions as well. What was he trying to do? He was trying to secure his legacy and make everyone around him recognize just how great he was. And when he was disrespected, it sent him into a rage. We see that in verse 13. See, some of the leaders tattled on Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego for not bowing down, and Nebuchadnezzar goes just crazy about it. Look at verse 13. Nebuchadnezzar, in a furious rage, commanded that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be brought. He couldn't handle that kind of disrespect. How dare you not recognize how great I am? And he's this like blatantly obvious example of what can go on like subtly in our hearts, undetected sometimes. The only thing he cared about was his own name. And as I read and studied and prayed this week, I was really struck with um, the fact that it's like just too common even to see this sort of uh, kingdom building for your own name and your own sake, even in the church. It can be really tempting when you're especially um, thinking that, so certainly I'm working for God. <laughs> I'm not doing anything for myself. I'm, I'm working for Him. And we don't realize, actually, sometimes that can be, we, we can be working to build our own giant statue instead. I don't know of a single church that has on their mission statement, on their website, we exist to build our brand and make ourselves famous, right? Nobody, like, thinks these things. But just because the website doesn't say it doesn't mean it's not the ultimate goal. There's a great book that I'd recommend. It's a hard book to read, but it's really good. It's called When Narcissism Comes to Church. It's by Chuck DeGroat, and this is what he says in that book. He says, it's not easy to confront systemic narcissism in churches that are seen as special, blessed, spirit-led, and anointed. Whole church systems and programs evolve within the waters of narcissism sometimes. Many ministry leaders today can be obsessively preoccupied with their reputation, influence, success, rightness, relevance, platform, and power. It's a scary quote. It's true. It's easy to say and even believe that you're doing things in the name of Jesus if you're just trying to build your own brand. I actually uh, used to work uh, at a church that was a part of a church planting network, and we, I had to do this. We had to take a personality test beforehand, and what I didn't realize was that this personality test was basically designed, now they wouldn't have said it like this, but basically designed to like find these like kind of potentially narcissistic traits and like promote these people into senior leadership because... They were seen as the best leaders who got the best results and attract the most people. And the results spoke for themselves. These kinds of people have the most people come to their church. So we need to make sure to promote this personality of a person so that the churches can grow. This was built into the fabric of this church planting network that I was a part of. And it's not surprising that that network has since crumbled. But at the time, no one could see it because churches were growing and campuses were being added and, and uh, more and more people were part of these churches. More and more people were genuinely coming to follow Jesus, right? Like, that's what can even be crazy and hard to understand about these things is, like, people can genuinely come to faith in these kind of unhealthy environments. So what do we do with that? 
When your church grows, everyone says, well, God is at work. And that is sometimes true, right? We're not saying that church growth is always bad. Don't take it as going in the opposite direction. But, but what I am saying is sometimes in ministry, you can think that you're working for God, but you're just instead building a giant golden statue. And that, like, terrifies me. I have to be constantly on guard about my own heart as your pastor. So, like, if I think we need to go in a certain direction and people disagree, it's like, okay, well, what's my response to that? Do I get, like, upset about that? And if so, why do I get upset about that? Maybe it's because I'm just trying to build my own kingdom. So we need, as a church, just to recognize every church, I'm not just saying this just to our church, every church needs to be on guard about these things to make sure that we're not deluding ourselves into thinking we're working for Jesus when we're just trying to build a ridiculous-looking golden statue. And while it's not, I've talked about church, it's not definitely not only that this can happen in the church, it's going to happen in every area of life, right? We can try to turn our family into a giant golden statue. We want people to, to look at our family and say, wow, look at, look at these people, they're amazing. If a spouse or a child embarrasses you or disrespects you or doesn't do what you want and you respond with like an explosion, that should cause you to check in your heart and say, what's, what's going on here? We need to guard ourselves and make sure that we have others to keep us accountable for these things as well. We can turn our career into a golden image because we want recognition for what we've done. If you get so mad if somebody else gets credit for what you've done, that can be the same kind of thing. I mean, honestly, let's be honest. What is social media except an obelisk of glittery images of our lives designed to make others bow down at the altar of the like button, right? Well, if you post something, it doesn't get as many likes as you want. You want to throw some people in the furnace, maybe, right? So before we compare ourselves to the bravery of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, we should first recognize that each of us has a little bit of Nebuchadnezzar inside of us as well. So I'm not saying this to, to make us feel guilty or ashamed by any means, but what I don't want us to do is to think, oh, that, that could never be me. Yeah, you're probably not going to build a giant golden statue. You probably don't have the means to build a giant golden statue. Maybe if you literally had enough money to buy to build a 90-foot golden statue, maybe you would. I don't know. I don't know how much that costs, actually. We're not doing that, right? But I think we need to be humble and recognize, like, man, I can have some of these same tendencies in my own heart, in my own life. So that's Nebuchadnezzar. Don't be like Nebuchadnezzar, okay? And when you are like Nebuchadnezzar, repent. And remember that God has grace for you. It's not the end. It's not, oh, I found these things in my heart, now I'm doomed, now I'm done. No. So repent. Repent means turning from where you were and going in a new direction. Repent and remember the grace that God has for you in your heart. So don't be like Nebuchadnezzar. And when you're like Nebuchadnezzar, we repent and we trust God's grace. Number two, simple point number two, a bold response. A bold response. So they brought these men before the king. Verse 14, Nebuchadnezzar answered and said to them, Isn't it true, O Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the golden image that I have set up? He can't even believe it. 
He can't believe. He's so blinded by his own narcissism, Nebuchadnezzar, is that he can't imagine anyone wouldn't bow to the image. And he's so, I mean, get the, he's so untethered personally to any moral stance that might cost him something that he can't fathom somebody else clinging to a moral stance that might cost him something. Like, that's just so beyond his even ability. Like, why wouldn't you just do the thing that promotes you? He can't even fathom somebody like doing something self-sacrificial for a greater good. Again, textbook narcissist. He's so incredulous with this, he gives them another chance. Maybe they didn't understand him the first time. Verse 15. Now, if you are ready, when you hear the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, here we go with all these things, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, to fall down and worship the image that I have made, well and good. But if you do not worship, you shall immediately be cast into a burning fiery furnace. And then he says this, and who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? Nebuchadnezzar, come on, man. You know the God who will deliver them out of your hands. You just said this in verse 47, chapter 2. Nebuchadnezzar just said to Daniel, truly, your God is God of gods and Lord of kings. But now he has forgotten that. So what are they going to say? How are they going to respond? How would you respond? Could you justify kneeling down? Maybe say, well, I'll kneel, but in my heart I'll just be praying to God. And I, pray, I kneel and pray all the time. And what, why not if I just so happen to be kneeling in that same spot at that same time that everyone else is kneeling and praying to this God, but I'll go and kneel and pray to my own God. That way... I can keep my position of influence in the kingdom. After all, doesn't God need us here to be a good witness? Hasn't God called us and promoted us into this position so that we can have influence over the kingdom of Babylon? And if we're not here, there's no hope for anyone else around us because there's nobody else that believes in our God who's in this position. God needs us here. Maybe they could have justified it by saying that, forgetting that God doesn't need anything or anyone. It'd certainly be easy to tell yourself it's okay to compromise in the short term to protect your long-term usefulness to God. But once again, it's like we said, we're not called to make a cost-benefit analysis of obedience. We're called to obey. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego's response is one of the most incredible and bold passages in all of Scripture. Look at what they say, verse 16. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, if you're really going to throw us in the furnace, our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the burning fire, fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. Verse 18. But if not, even if he doesn't, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Wow. Did you catch that? They said, God can save us. 
It's not a matter of maybe. He can save us. What kind of faith would that take? How many people had they seen be thrown into furnaces and be saved up until that point in their lives? Probably less than a dozen. Probably zero. God can save us, but he might not. Either way, we will not bow down. That, my friends, takes guts because those words would be their death sentence. You know, many Christians all over the world, all throughout church history, have had to take the same kind of stance. When Martin Luther was accused by the Catholic Church of being a heretic, he was asked if he, was, he would recant his position. And he knew that if he didn't, he could be burned at the stake. So he asked for a day to formulate his thoughts. When he came back the next day, he gave a powerful speech and ended with this. He said, I neither can nor will retract anything, for it cannot be either safe or honest for a Christian to speak against his conscience. Here I stand. I cannot do otherwise. God help me. Amen. Here I stand. We will not bow down. Whether it's Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, Martin Luther, or the many martyrs throughout church history who have died because they wouldn't publicly recant. These men and women are examples to us of the fact that following Jesus is worth any cost, even if it means your own life. And what the free, three friends recognize here in Daniel chapter 3 is something that's really hard reality for us to grasp. Does God have the power to deliver people from every difficulty and every trial? Yes. Think of a trial you are walking through right now or have walked through in the past. Could God deliver you from that trial immediately? Yes. Does he always do that? No. Is God any less God if he doesn't do that? No. Is God any less in control? Even if he does not rescue us, those words are hard to hear. It's hard to hear. And yet, this is how we should relate to God. Not just in life or death situations, but anything that you are finding yourself walking through right now. This is how we should pray, God, you know my heart. You know what I want. You know my every desire. God, you know that I don't want to be going through this right now. God, you know how hard it is for me. God, I know that you have a power, the power to speak a word and make all this go away right now, God. And yet, even if you don't, while I might not understand it and I might never understand it, you are still God. You are still on the throne. God, help me trust your goodness, whether you deliver me for the, from the furnace or not. Wow. This bold response of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego should encourage us to remember the power of God to deliver us and the sovereignty of God when he doesn't. Well, we don't find ourselves right now facing the death penalty because of our faith, 
We should remember and pray for our brothers and sisters all over the world who find themselves in this exact situation right now. So we've seen a narcissistic king, a bold response, and now once again we're going to see a faithful God. Look at verse 19. This is great. Then Nebuchadnezzar was filled with fury, and the expression of his face was changed against Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So he goes from kind of confusion about why aren't you bowing down? Did you misunderstand me? And now he's just once again filled with rage. This is, again, showing the ridiculous of the whole situation. He ordered the furnace heated seven times more than it was usually heated. Heated up seven times more. I don't even, what does that even mean, seven times more? It doesn't mean anything. It's nonsense, right? But they cranked it up <laughs> somehow. And he ordered some of the mighty men of his army to bind Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and to cast them into the burning, fiery furnace. These men were bound in their cloaks, their tunics, their hats, and their other garments, and they were thrown into the burning, fiery furnace. Verse 22. Because the king's order was urgent and the furnace overheated, the flame of fire killed those men who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So ironically, the king is so angry, he cranks it up even more that the men who bound Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and throw them in the furnace are killed and burned, burned up just by being that close to the furnace. And these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell bound into the burning, fiery furnace. Then King Nebuchadnezzar was astonished and rose up in haste. He declared to his counselors, did we not cast three men bound into the fire? They answered to the king and said, True, O king. You're not going to say no to anything that Nebuchadnezzar says in that moment. Yes, yes, you're right, yes. Everything you say is right and good, yes. True, O king. He answered and said, But I see four men unbound, walking in the midst of the fire, and they are not hurt. And the appearance of the fourth is like a son of the gods. Then Nebuchadnezzar came near the door of the burning, fiery furnace. He declared, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out and come here. Then Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out from the fire. And the satraps, the prefects, the governors, and the king's counselors gathered together and saw that the fire had not any power over the bodies of these men. The hair of their heads was not singed, their cloaks were not harmed, and no smell of fire had come upon them. What a story. God has delivered his people. Praise the Lord. Now some people argue that this was Jesus himself pre-incarnate Jesus walking with them in the fire. I tend to agree with that myself, but other people say it was just an angel, and the truth is we can't know for sure. But what we do know is that God was faithful to deliver his people from the flames of trial. And that same God, through his Son, is faithful to deliver his people from the flames of trial today. The book Daniel for You, David Helm says, while this story doesn't promise deliverance from our earthly enemies, it does leave us with two beautiful promises. The first promise is simply that we can't expect that following Jesus will lead to an adversity-free life. In other words, we can know that we will walk through trial. But the second promise 
is that God is with us in the fire. He's with you in the fire, and he will see you through. Ultimately, each one of us will face the final trial of death. If you spend your life bowing to the gods of this world, you can expect to face the flames of the next. But if in Christ you've been forgiven, you can know beyond the shadow of a doubt that these flames cannot touch you. You will leave unscathed. Your garments will be white as snow. They won't even smell like smoke. Can I get an amen? Jesus will deliver you from the flame. So this morning, before we condemn Nebuchadnezzar for his outrageous, blatant narcissism, Let's make sure to look into our own hearts, to see our own tendency, to want others to bow down to the golden statues that we want to build. When you're in a tough spot and you're tempted to compromise your conscience, remember, God isn't calling you to do a cost-benefit analysis on obedience. He's calling you to obey boldly, regardless of where that takes you. And the reason we can obey is because no matter what flames you might find yourself in, even right now, this moment, you can know beyond the shadow of a doubt that Jesus is right there with you. One day, he will deliver you from this earthly kingdom to your heavenly home. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, God, we thank you. We praise you. What a testament, God, to your faithfulness. Sometimes we find ourselves in really hard situations. Sometimes those are hard situations of our own making. Other times they're hard situations we had nothing to do with, God. Yet we can know that you are faithful, that you are with us, that you are near. You will not leave us. You will not forsake us. You are the good shepherd. Thank you for Jesus, for the one who is with us in the fire in this world and will deliver us the kingdom to come. Lord, even as we live in Babylon right now, we know that we have, can already have experienced the forgiveness of Jesus as we await our forever home. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.